Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy, and Lord, again, we just want to hear from you. Lord, please speak to us by your Spirit through the simple reading of your Word, and have your way with us now. So guide us and lead us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Ezekiel chapter 21. Lord willing, today we'll read 21 and 22. But for sure, if uh, you haven't read through Ezekiel or read through it in a while, um, you kind of come into the middle of this, you feel like you're in the middle of a story, and you think, wow, what's going on? So, overview. Is that all right? Overview puts us all on the same page. Here's the overview. God, well, overview, we're sinners, (laughs) okay? We need a Savior. God promised as far back as the Garden of Eden that the Savior, He's going to provide a Savior from the seed of the woman, Eve, okay? Um, God later says that, tells Abraham that that Savior is going to come from your line of people. We know the story, the descendants of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons birthed a big family, ultimately birthed a nation. And that nation we know of as the nation of Israel. Fast forward a few centuries, uh, they are a well-established nation, and uh, they decide that they'd like to neglect the Lord and see how that works out for them and uh, instead adopt the pagan idol practices of all their neighbors. And so, you know how that works out for them? Not so well. But God in His grace and mercy lets them kind of see the hard lessons sort of a piece at a time, if you will. So after the reign of King Solomon, who was the son of David, uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam, during his reign, the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, the northern kingdom, and I believe 722 BC, got conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And they were scattered amongst all the various pieces of the Assyrian Empire. And they sort of, in a sense, lost their identity. And uh, the southern kingdom, which we call the kingdom of Judah, remained for about another 150 years. And they had a front row seat, historically speaking, they had a front row seat of what happened when the northern kingdom. Uh, fell into sin and idolatry and the consequences accordingly. But as we talked about, I believe, last week, do we generally learn the lessons of history? I was talking about this with a guy earlier. Do we generally learn the lessons of history? No, never. (laughs) We tend to repeat those mistakes, right? And so 150 years later, we find ourselves uh, in the context that Ezekiel's talking about about to be, with the southern kingdom of Judah, about to be conquered by the Babylonians, right? The northern kingdom got conquered by the Assyrians. Now the southern kingdom is going to be conquered by the Babylonians. But here's the interesting thing. They were conquered, and again, please see this not as a picture of repeated destruction, but see this as a picture of God's mercy. God loves to warn his people, but he warns his people for a reason. And so 605 BC, the Babylonians come, they conquer a little bit, but they don't destroy Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, they conquer a little bit, take off some captives. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went off on that, on that, gr- that group. And then 597 BC, uh, what, eight years later, they come again. And this time Ezekiel goes off captive to Babylon. And 
Then in 586 BC, 11 years later, Babylon is going to say, we've had it with these wicked kings, we've had it with this wicked people, we've had it, well, they're not wicked because they're, I mean, they're not calling them wicked because they're wicked themselves. But anyway, we've had it with this rebellious people, we've had it with this uh, nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, we're just going to go destroy them. And so, sure enough, 586 B.C., uh, the kingdom of Judah was finally conquered and destroyed. The king at that time, King Zedekiah, was captured, taken off to Babylon, and killed. Okay? So, kind of a pick-me-up story, don't you think? Makes you kind of feel like you wish you were there, but not really. But, so anyway, so what we have at this time period that's being written now God is speaking to the, the remnant that's left there in Jerusalem by the prophecies of Jeremiah, and God is at the same time speaking to the captives in Babylon by the prophet Ezekiel. And so we're between that time of 597 B.C., because that's when Ezekiel got carried off. We're between that time and the final destruction, okay? So picture this just in terms of if you were, you know, reading... CNN sitting in Babylon at the time, you'd say, okay, they've come twice. Uh, I think if we really rally our troops, we could take this back. And so it's a little bit of a limbo time, but both Jeremiah and Ezekiel are saying, no, it's not limbo time, it's judgment time. And it's not the time to rally your troops, it's time to repent and to repent of your sin because the problem is sin. And so these two chapters, that brings us to where we're talking about today. Uh, chapter 21 talks about the judgment that's going to come. And chapter 22 talks about the why the judgment is coming, right? The judgment's going to come because of their sin, but for sure the judgment's going to come. It's not a rallying of the troops. It's a need for repentance. Okay? Everybody up to speed? All right. Like, you know, say game on or that's what I'm talking about or... Rock and roll. Okay, good. All that. So, God's just trying to simply get their attention. So, we start out chapter 21. And the word of the Lord came to me, that is to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, preach against the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. Now, let me say this. We, we always say, when we think of prophecy, oftentimes we think of prophecy that's yet future, okay? for us, because we always see the world from our perspective. So a lot of, for sure, a lot of things in, later on in Ezekiel uh, are prophecies about things which have yet to take place, right? But part of the way we see that we can, if we think of it this way, Ezekiel's prophecies later on in the book for future events for us, we can take those seriously and we can actually interpret those pretty literally as much as possible because Ezekiel was also at the time prophesying something that was going to happen in his near fulfillment that's happened before us. Does that make sense? So Ezekiel's talking here, if I was on a timeline, well, you guys read left, left to right. So you're on a timeline, right? Ezekiel's talking. He's talking about some stuff that we don't know about yet, but he's also talking about some stuff that was future to him, but past to us. Does that make sense? So if we're here, we can say, yeah, what he said about that, that's going to happen. Why? Because what he said about that did happen. Does that make sense? So he says, set your face toward Jerusalem. And so you got to picture, Ezekiel, uh, you know, Larry mentioned earlier, Ezekiel was asked to do some pretty weird stuff. And so, you know, one of the things he's doing is like he's, 
you know, let's say I'm supposed to be talking to you guys, right? Jerusalem is, um, well, it's either way, right? So Jerusalem's that way, and I'm talking to you guys, and I'm setting my face toward Jerusalem, and I start preaching about Jerusalem. That'd be a little bit weird, right? So Ezekiel did a lot, the point is, Ezekiel did a lot of things that were pretty weird, and uh, it would cause them to say, you know, that's weird, why are you doing that? So he says, and say to them, say to the land of Israel, verse 3, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you, and I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off both righteous and wicked from you. Because I will cut off both righteous and wicked from you, therefore my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh from, north to south, from south to north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It shall not return anymore. And so God's going to draw a sword. He's not saying, hey, if you get your act together, or if you, you, know, if you strengthen your troops, and if you uh, try a little harder, uh, you'll be able to kind of restore that kingdom. He says, no, I'm bringing a sword. And the sword is a picture of Babylon. The word sword is mentioned 19 times in this chapter. And specifically, the sword is Babylon, and God is bringing judgment. But we have to notice, if we're honest, that we... Um, we notice where he says here, the righteous and the wicked will be cut off. And if you were here two weeks ago, we read in chapter 18, the, God made a big point through Ezekiel that a person is accountable for his own sin, right? If my father uh, sins, then he's accountable for that, but I don't pay the price for his sin and vice versa. If I sin and my father's righteous, I don't reap the rewards of that, right? But there are some, some realities in life and that has to do with, you know, our punishment from God eternally or our, or our salvation from God eternally. Um, this doesn't necessarily contradict that, but there are consequences to sin. And I think we need to be aware of this and just look at it this way if we can. When I sin, it affects more than me. Can you capture this? You know, picture Eve... In the Garden of Eden. She thinks she's having a dialogue with some serpent about whether or not she should eat a fruit. We don't know if it's an apple, by the way. It's probably a rutabaga. It's not a fruit, right? Anyway, something. She should eat some fruit. She's trying to decide if she should eat that fruit. And the Scripture says when she saw that it was uh, pleasing to the eye and good for food, I think is how it's phrased, then she took it. What was she thinking about? Was she thinking about the fact that you and I in the 21st century would be living out the consequences of a fallen world? She had no clue. I believe she had no clue what was about to take place when she ate that fruit. Now, is our sin as consequential for all of humanity as that? I mean, probably not. That was clearly a turning point, right, in, in all of humanity. But suffice it to say, when we sin, the consequences of that, try to decide if I should say almost always or always. I think I'm going to say always. Always go beyond what we think they, they do right? You might be sitting there trying to make a, you know, a simple decision, right? 
should I click on that site or not? Now we're getting real, right? Should I click on that site or not? Well, nobody will know. It's just me and the site, right? Let me tell you this. The consequences always, always go beyond what you think they do. And the people affected are always a greater number of people than who you think you're talking about. And it's never just you. Is that fair? It's a little sober. I get it. It's a little sober, but it's real. It's a real part of life. And the reality is our sin always has ramifications that we don't even understand, but they're always greater than what we're thinking. So that's the reality for these people. He goes on, verse 6, Sigh, therefore, son of man, with a breaking heart, and sigh with bitterness before their eyes. And it shall be when they say to you, Why are you sighing? That you shall answer, because of this news, when it comes, every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and shall be brought to pass, says the Lord. Now, this is kind of funny. In, in our family, you know, my wife, um, um, well, she's uh, full of the joy of the Lord, right? And to make matters worse, she uh, recently read this book, I'm That Girl, which exhorts her to be full of the joy of the Lord, right? And if you've read that book, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you should. But anyway, so every now and then, I'll be in the kitchen, right? Or I'll be online, or I'll be paying bills. <laughs> it's worse when I'm paying bills. I'm paying bills. And, I'll do so- and I'm not even thinking about it, right? I'll, I'll be like... <sighs> Right, and she's like, usually not as astute at hearing, but she has some kind of frequency perception that if I exhale vigorously, she'll say, "Are you sighing?" Right? And I'm like, well, now I can say it because I can say. No, I actually was sitting down, and that takes a lot more work than it used to, right? <laughs> so I just blame it on my physical tenure. But anyway, Ezekiel's told to sigh, right? Sighing is, a, is, a, is a, an expression of a broken heart. Ezekiel is brokenhearted for what's about to come. And that should speak to us as Christians today, because I believe... We are in a land, in a culture, in a time and place in history where, I mean, God is God. God can do what he wants. God is completely in control of everything, and I'm thankful that he is and not me, right? But having said that, it would appear to me that there are some things in this world that it wouldn't surprise me if God would judge them. Does that make sense? And if he does, one of the hallmarks of biblical history, particularly the Old Testament biblical history, is when God does bring judgment, there's always a handful of people standing around, you got what's coming to you, right? That's the song that is forbidden in our house from a young age, right? Nobody in our house is allowed to sing, right? They tried to start it almost 30 years ago right? But it doesn't happen. 
and there were nations. And God, and God delivers specific, he'll actually deliver judgment to the Babylonians because of that. He'll deliver to the Edomites because of that. He'll deliver to the Ammonites because of that. And there are so many nations and, and groups of people that kind of had that nana, nana, nana attitude. Ezekiel, on the other hand, is sighing at the, at the thought of judgment coming upon his people. The people that aren't listening to him, the people that are mocking him, the people that are uh, blowing him off, and they think he's crazy. Judgment's going to come to those people, but Ezekiel still maintains compassion for those people. That should be us. That should be us. Verse 8, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say, a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make a dreadful slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Should we then make mirth? Now, the word mirth means like merry. Should we be entertained? Should we dance? Should we be all like happy-go-lucky, everything is great? No, because judgment is coming. It despises the scepter of my son. And it, as it does all, all wood, and he has given it to be polished that it may be handled. The sword is sharpened and it is polished to be given to the hand of the slayer. So times of judgment are not times for partying and entertainment and he who dies with the most toys wins and all of that. Okay? Now, let me just say this. Again, God can do what he wants to do with our, with our world today. But there should be a sense. I mean, I love having uh, a good time. I love being uh, funny. I think I'm hilarious. I love watching Andy Griffith, right? Today, by the way, I was told, is Ernest T. Bass's birthday, right? I love that stuff. But I never... I never can lose the sobriety of this life. Does that make sense? We should be all in on understanding the sobriety. Life's not a party. Life is not a party, especially in the day that we live in. Probably never, but especially in the day we live in. So should we then make mirth? No, no. It's time. The scepter, the, the scepter is going to be destroyed. The scepter was a picture of royalty, right? So the royal line is going to be destroyed. He goes on. Cry and wail, verse 12, son of man. For it will be against my people, against all the princes of Israel. Now, in these few, verse, in these few chapters, uh, really throughout uh, these chapters of judgment on, on uh, Judah, Ezekiel specifically uses this word princes to refer to the kings of Judah. And so it's almost like he doesn't give them the, the, the dignity to call on them kings, right? But when you see these, uh, these words, princes, against the princes of Israel, we're talking about these wicked, these last few kings of the nation of Israel. We've talked about them. Uh, after Josiah was Jehoahaz, then Jehoiakim, then Jehoiachin, and then Zedekiah. Those guys were all wicked. And that's who he's talking about when he says against the princes of Israel. Terrors, including the sword, will be against my people. Therefore, strike your thigh because it is a testing. And what if the sword despises even the scepter? The scepter shall be no more. And so what he's saying is the sword of judgment, that is Babylon, is going to destroy the scepter, that is the royalty, the royal line. Now, we got to get our head around this uh, cross-culturally and cross-historically, if you will. And that is this. It's important that we understand this. 
This judgment is against, quote, my people as well as all the princes, i.e. all the royalty. Now, I said earlier, earlier that God said that the Messiah is going to come through the family of Abraham, the Jewish people, right? And God further then, as you, as you march out history, uh, along came King David, right? And God said, that, that Messiah that I've been talking about from your people, he's going to come through your line, right? And so what do we see in Matthew chapter 1? When Matthew, speaking to a Jewish audience, wants us to know who Jesus is, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's telling us, this is the one we've been looking for. Jesus is the one we've been looking for. But anyway, back up. So you're the Jewish person at 586 B.C., and there's been a royal line. David had a son named Rehoboam, right? Uh, Rehoboam had a son, and he had a son, and he had a son. And we're following all the royal line. And at the time of this writing, we're following that royal line down to King Zedekiah who's a wicked man. And here's what's interesting. King Zedekiah is going to be killed. Ezekiel is prophesying that King Zedekiah is going to be killed. The royal line appears to be cut off. The royal line appears to be cut off. Well, imagine if you are a short-sighted Jew in that time period. You'd be at least tempted to say, we're cooked, man. Our identity as a Jewish people was, was wrapped up in the fact that the Messiah is going to come from us. This is, this is dreadful. This is beyond hopeless. Not only are we going to be destroyed by Babylon, which is bad enough, not only is Jerusalem itself going to be destroyed by Babylon, which is bad enough, but the royal line is going to be destroyed, is how it looks. Right? Well, you go back to Matthew, and sure enough, what it looked like at that point in time. But, again, you go back to Matthew, right? And uh, we read about uh, one of those guys in that line of genealogy from Abraham to Jesus is uh, Jeconiah. Jeconiah was another name for Jehoiachin. So, yeah, Zedekiah was, uh, was taken, right? But his nephew, Je- Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, was still in the royal line. The point being in all that, does God keep his word? Wait a minute. What if we don't understand it? Does God still keep his word? What if it makes no sense to us? Does God still keep his word? What if things are really bad? Does God still keep his word? Absolutely. And he always finds a way to do that, right? He always finds a way to do that. So, yep, the scepter is going to go down, but Don't worry, God still has a plan for a Messiah. Verse 14, You therefore, son of man, prophesy and strike your hands together. The third time, let the sword do double damage. It is the sword that slays, the sword that slays the great men that enters their private chambers. See? It worked, right? It worked when Mrs. Dinwiddie did it in the first grade in 1970-whatever, right? And it worked now, and it worked for, for Ezekiel. He says, strike your hands together. What's, he po- what's the point? It gets your attention. Did I just get your attention? Some of you, I think I might have just ruined a good dream, right? But I got your attention, right? 
And God says to Ezekiel, I want you to get the attention of these people. God is trying every means imaginable to get their attention. He says, strike your hands together. The third time, let the sword do damage. What happened in 605 BC? Babylonians came. What happened in 597 BC? Babylonians came. What's going to happen in 586 BC? The Babylonians are going to come, and this time it'll be the third time, and the sword is going to do double damage. The sword that slays, the sword that slays the great men that enters the private chambers. There's going to be no secret hiding place. Zedekiah is going to try to find it. He's going to get killed. And so the point is, again, God is, God is desperately trying to warn these people. I have set, verse 15, I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that the heart may melt and many may stumble. Ah, it is made bright. It is grasped for slaughter. Swords at the ready, thrust right. Set your blade, thrust left. Wherever you, your edge is ordered, I also will beat my fist together. I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have spoken. So judgment is coming. Verse 18, the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, and son of man, appoint for yourself two ways for the, ro for the sword of the king of Babylon to go. Both of them shall go from the same land. Make a sign, put it at the head of the road to the city. Appoint a road for the sword to go to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into a fortified Jerusalem. Now we don't have a map on the wall, but Babylon is going to come into Judah and Jerusalem, its capital city, from the north. Okay? So if I'm, they're going to come from the from the far uh, east, and they're going to come around from the north, and as they come around from the north, Babylon, I'm sorry, uh, Judah is on the west side of the Jordan, Ammon is on the east side of the Jordan River, right? And so Ammon was uh, the, a nation that was descended from Lot, and God says to, to Ezekiel, I want you to put a sign in the road, this was probably more of a map that he would have drawn to the people, for the people in Babylon to see. But I want you to put a sign in the road basically indicating a fork in the road. Uh, and, you know, people are going to hope that the Babylonians are going to judge the, the Ammonites first. But in reality, God is going to judge the Israelites first. For the king of Babylon, verse 21, stands at the parting of the road, at the fork of the two roads, to use divination. He's going to try to figure out whether he should go conquer the Ammonites first or conquer the Jews first. And so he's going to use all these sophisticated means of determining that, uh, these means of divination. He's going to shake the arrows, which was the way they did. He's going to consult the images. And my personal favorite, he's going to look at the liver, okay? In his right hand is, his, is the divination for Jerusalem to set up battering rams, to call for slaughter, to lift the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to heap up a siege mound, and to build a wall. And it, it will be to them like a false divination in the eyes of those who have sworn oaths with them, but he will bring their iniquity to remembrance that they may be taken. So all this to say, they used all kinds of crazy uh, pagan practices, and supposedly, I looked this up a little bit, but... Um, the animals that they would slaughter, they would look at the liver, and somehow, if, based on what the liver looked like, was supposed to tell you, you know, whether you should zig or zag. We're much more sophisticated. We have eeny, meeny, miny, mo. They had the liver, right? And so, they would look at the liver, try to decide if they should go right or left, and when he looks at the liver, he's going to be like, uh, I should go to Judah. Now, does God use that liver thing? No. 
God just made him go to the left, go to, go to, I'm sorry, go to the right, go to Judah, and he would have thought it was a liver thing or whatever, uh, but God's calling it false divination. Anyway, God is bringing judgment. That's the bottom line. God is bringing judgment. Make no mistake about it. Verse 24, therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you've made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your doings your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. Now, most commentators say this is a specific reference to um, Zedekiah, the last king of the nation of Judah. And this is how he's going to be remembered. He's going to be remembered for his iniquity, that his transgressions are uncovered. That's going to be how he's remembered. How will we be remembered? How will we be remembered? You know, we have a relatively short period of time to do what we can to determine that, right? And the question is, how will we be remembered? We know from the pages of biblical history that Zedekiah was remembered as an evil man. I don't think we want that. Verse 25, now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel. Again, prince is a a sort of a downgrade term for King Zedekiah. Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes, whose right hand it is, and I will give it to him. So all the king's royalty, all the prominence is going to be humbled. And God has this principle throughout Scripture uh, that the humble is exalted, the exalted are humbled. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5-7 through 7 says this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Can I tell you this? It's a general principle in life that sooner or later we're humbled. And my experience has been that it's a little more uh, palatable when I humble myself than when I get humbled. Does that make sense? And so, again, that's available for us. But he also says, now, you're going to be humbled, King Zedekiah, and you're going to be no longer until he comes. In my Bible, that's capitalized. He comes, whose right hand it is, and I will give it to him. Who's he going to give it to? Jesus. He's going to give the royalty to Jesus. He's preserving the royal line, even in the midst. I mean, we've read a pretty difficult so far chapter of judgment. And even in the midst of such terrible, pressing judgment, God has given us a clue that he hasn't forgot his people. He hasn't forgot his plan of salvation. He's going to bring the royalty back, and the Messiah will come, and he, he comes whose right it is, and I'll give it to him. Verse 28, remember those Ammonites we talked about? After Babylon conquers 
Judah, he's going to conquer Ammon. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, and say, a sword, a sword is drawn, polished for slaughter, for consuming, for flashing, while they see false visions for you, while they divine a lie to you, to bring you on the necks of the wicked, the slain, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Return it to its sheath. I will judge you in the place where you were created, in the land of your nativity. I'll pour out my indignation on you. I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath and deliver you into the hands of brutal men who are skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. So, the Ammonites will be punished and destroyed as well, and they shall not be remembered. Now, it's interesting. If you meet a Jewish person today, and that person knows their heritage, they might say something like, I'm a Jewish person. Is that fair? Does that sound crazy to anybody? They might say, I'm of Jewish blood. Have you ever met a person that said, I'm an Ammonite? Have you? I'm an Ammonite. Well, there's probably some people running around here, maybe some of you, with Ammonite blood, right? It's possible, but they lost their identity as a people, right? Is God, and so why did God preserve the Jewish people as a national identity and not the Ammonite people or the Moabite people? Why? Because the Messiah comes through the Jewish people and the Messiah will come back through the Jewish people. And again, you've heard me say before, but it still strikes me as, as amazing. The nation of Israel was non-existent after 70 AD, Right? A generation after the time of Jesus. The Romans came in, did basically what the Babylonians did in a sense. They basically wiped them clean. The nation of Israel no longer exists, right? In a few chapters, well, a couple months probably, we're going to read later on in Ezekiel. God takes Ezekiel out to a valley of dry bones, a bunch of dead bones. And God says, can these bones live? Ezekiel's like, uh, it's a loaded question you know, Lord. And sure enough, the bones come to life. And God says, this is the whole house of Israel. 70 AD, they were dead as a nation. 1948, what do we have? A nation of Israel, right? Does God keep his word? Imagine you lived in 1940. You might be tempted, just like that line of the Messiah I was, going to talk, I was talking about, the line of David. If you lived in 1940, you might say, well, I think God may be had some kind of mystery on that one, but clearly uh, there's not a Jewish nation, so clearly there's not a return of, uh, you know, there's not, there's not a fulfillment of all those prophecies that related specifically to the Jewish people. So we got to kind of fill in the gaps, right? We don't have to fill in the gaps on biblical history. Let God do it. Let God do it. So the Ammonites shall not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken, he said. So that takes us through chapter 21. Chapter 21, we, basically, judgment's coming. A sword. It's going to be at the hand of Babylon. And chapter 22 says, why? Now, I think if we look at this, we could look at this chapter 22, and I'm going to encourage us, well, we read it one way, and we'll say, wow, those people were evil. <laughs> sure enough, if I was God, I'd punish that what we're about to read. 
right? Is that how we should read it? You think I'm going to encourage us to read it like that? Like, whoa, they were, that's, not, that's almost unreadable. They were scumbags, right? They were heathen. They were losers. Is that how we should read it? No, I think we should read it like, let's consider, let's consider, are there any aspects of modern Christianity and even more so, are there any aspects of me? Paul says, in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing, right? And you've heard me say before, you know, life is like a road, and right, the, the further you get down the road, uh, the more sort of ingrained you are on that road, right? And if we can, all, if we can, if we can kind of pull back to what's the starting point of that road, then we're, we're more capable to get on the right road and reset our destiny. Does that make sense? I mean, God determines our destiny, but you know what I'm saying. And so, as we read through this chapter 22, I want us to kind of, I'm going to kind of try to highlight what are those things that might lead towards this kind of depravity. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Here we go. Chapter 22, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Now, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Yes, show her all her abominations. So I'm going to show you why judgment is coming. Then say, thus says the Lord God, the city sheds blood in her own midst, that her time may come, and she makes idols within herself to defile herself. You become guilty by the blood which you have shed and have defiled yourself with the idols with which, you, which you have made. You have caused your days to draw near and have come to the end of your years. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries. Those near and those far from you will mock you as infamous and full of tumult. Now, we got to also keep in mind, these are highly religious people that Ezekiel's talking to, that God is talking about. These are, these are people that went to the temple, uh, the Jewish temple, every week. These are the people that sacrificed uh, their, you know, their Passover lambs. These are people that participated in all the Jewish rituals. These were the people that thought they were better than the Gentiles because they had the oracles of God. They knew the Ten Commandments. They had the Old Testament law. They had Moses as their, you know, the key piece of their history. They were children of Abraham. Remember when Jesus came on the scene, he's talking to the Pharisees? One of the things that kept coming up is, is they'd say, hey, wait a minute, how dare you talk to us like this? Because we are children of Abraham, Right? And so there's that attitude. It's pompous. Do we have a little bit of that? Can we get a little pompous if we're not careful? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Is it possible for us to think we're better than XYZ Center? Yeah, for sure. And so keep in mind... We're going to read about some stuff that we might be tempted to think, ah, I'm exempt from that. But let me say, I don't think we're exempt from that. So, for example, this city sheds blood and uh, worships idols. I think I said last week, murder is extremely frowned upon in this church, right? 
no one should murder anybody in this church. It's kind of a, you know, it's not like in our bylaws, but it's understood. Fair enough? No murder, right? Idolatry. It's not in our bylaws, but nowhere do we say, I hope it's implied, you know, we don't go to the silversmith and get, a, get, a, get our own personal bail that we're going to bow down to, or Ashtoreth, or whatever, right? We're not going to do that, right? It's not in our bylaws, but it's pretty well understood, right? And you might say, all right, you're being ridiculous now. But if I say, you know, keep in mind, those people thought they were better than everybody else. That might get a little closer. Fair enough? So, he goes on. Verse 6. Look, the princes of Israel. Again, that's a reference to these wicked kings. Each one has used his power to shed blood in you. In you they've made light of father and mother in your midst. This is like in your gathering. It's like in your pew. In your church gathering. In your midst they have oppressed the stranger. In you they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. In you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. In you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst they commit lewdness. In you men uncover their father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. And another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. Now, just pause there for a second without getting too graphic. Again, we might say, that's crazy. What would ever happen in, how could that ever happen in a, in a church gathering? To which I'll say, come out on Wednesday night. We're going to read 1 Corinthians. Right? Happened in 1 Corinthians. In you, verse 12, they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. And so these are pretty brutal verses, honestly. This is horrible. We're talking about bloodshed. We're talking about corruption. We're talking about hiring hitmen for bloodshed. We're talking about widespread immorality all among God's people. And again, that, would t- that might cause us to say, eh, yeah, they got it coming. We're not that bad, right? We're not that bad. But notice also, I think this is their starting point. If you look at verse 12, in you they take bribes to shed blood, they, you take usury and increase, you have made profit from your neighbors by extortion, and have forgotten me. Have forgotten me. I believe the first step in this is they forgot God. Let's not forget God. Now, if we forget God, if we take him for granted, right? I mean, I've said this a million times. This life we live with the Lord is a relationship. It's not a religious system. It's a relationship we have with a loving God. And as any relationship has ups and downs, right? You think of a marriage relationship. You think of uh, any other relationship. Any relationship has ups and downs. And usually the down is... Uh, caused by one party to neglect the other party, right? And so we're talking about us and God. God is perfect, so if there's any downside in the relationship, it's on us. 
And usually how that starts is a neglect of God. Now, if we neglect God, or if we forget about God, or if we get slack with God, or if we fail to, to worship the magnificence and the majesty of God and, and all of that, is it going to turn us into um, murderers and hitmen and, and uh, this kind of uh, sexual immorality? Not necessarily. But just know this. There's a slippery slope of sin. Nate read this on Wednesday night. I want to read it again. Turn back to, to uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Now, you may recall from uh, farther back in history, the city of Sodom was exceedingly wicked. We won't go into all the details, but... When uh, Lot's family was there, the angels came to visit Lot, and in the middle of the night, these, these well, the Bible calls them perverts. These perverts are trying to crash the door down, and they're trying to get Lot and his family, and it's just, it's, it's, it's off the charts wicked. It's one of the, it's frankly one of the ugliest scenes in all the Bible. And you might say, so what was the sin of Sodom? Well, I would be tempted to say out of control, off the charts, sexual depravity. Right? Is that reasonable? Violence. Off the charts, violence. What does God say the sin of Sodom was? Chapter 16 of Ezekiel, verse 49. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. He's going to tell us what their sin was. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty, and they committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. What was the sin of Sodom? The sin of Sodom was pride, fullness of food, too big for the britches, abundance of idleness and they didn't have compassion for the needy. Now, we may not be beating down the, the doors of Lot in our depravity, but those things kind of define our culture a little bit, right? So what's my point? My point is you read these horrible things and just keep in mind, they have a starting point. In this case, what we read in, in chapter 22, the starting point is they have forgotten me. Verse 13, behold, therefore, I beat my fists at the dishonest profit which you have made and at the bloodshed which, was, which has been in your midst. Can your heart endure or can your hands remain strong in the days when I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I will scatter you among the peoples, among the nations, disperse you throughout the countries and remove your filthiness completely from you. You shall defile yourself in the sight of the nations. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So God says, I'm bringing punishment. I'm going to scatter you guys. That's in fact what happened when, uh, when they came. A lot of the people were scattered. The northern kingdom was totally scattered amongst the Assyrians. And God promised this as far back as Deuteronomy chapter 28, that that's what was going to happen. They'd be scattered and dispersed. 
Verse 17, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. They are all bronze, tin, iron, and lead in the midst of a furnace. They become dross from silver. So the dross is like the impurities in the silver, okay? So I'm not a silversmith, but you want to get rid of the impurities of the silver or the gold, for example, you heat it up and, and they separate and you draw off the impurities and you're left with the pure gold or the pure silver. So he says, the house of Israel has become the impurity. They're, gold, they're bronze, tin, iron, lead in the midst of the furnace. They become dross from the silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord, God, because you have become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as men gather silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin into the midst of the furnace to blow fire on it, to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my fury, and I will leave you there and melt you. Yes, I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in its midst. As silver is melted in the midst of a furnace, so shall you be melted in its midst. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury on you. So it's an interesting picture of God's judgment as well as God's grace. So sometimes we feel like in life we're going through a fire, right? Sometimes we go through situations in life that feel like a fire. Well, what, is fire, what, is, what does that do in, in this example? It purifies the metal. So what does the fire do to the metal? It removes the impurities, the dross, and it purifies the metal. So God's heart is not to destroy the Jewish people, but to purify them. And he's going to separate out the dross. Here's the problem. The Jews were so arrogant that they thought they were the silver, and everybody else is the dross. Again, could that be said of us? Could it be said of us that we think we're the special ones, when even God might be bringing judgment on us? Now again, that's maybe more heavy-handed than we need to, to know, but the point is, I had a friend back in Indianapolis that uh, he used to say, you know, we're all like a tire. Everybody's got a flat spot. You just have to sort of get to know me long enough to find it, right? I mean, if you get to know me for five minutes, right? I put on a smile, shake your hand. My daddy taught me how to shake hands firmly, right? I'm going to give you the right handshake. I'm going to talk, smile, you know, probably, you know, be cordial and gracious and all that, five minutes. You're going to think, he's an awesome guy, right? Ten minutes, I might still be an awesome guy, right? I wasn't even fishing that time. A couple years, ah, oh, he's got a flat spot, right? A couple decades, oh. he's, got a, he's got a hole in his tire, right? You know how that goes, right? We all have flat spots. Here's one of the, I think, one of the common threads of life. We very rarely ever see our own. We go through life thinking we're the silver, and maybe we're the tin, right? Or maybe there's a tin piece in us that we don't even recognize. Why is it important that we gather as the body of Christ? Again, my mind is going for 1 Corinthians, so bear with me. Why are we, 
Why is it important that we gather as the body of Christ? Why, why do we come to church? To hear a sermon? You can catch that online. And many people do. Well, not, it's not like it's viral, right? Right? You catch a sermon online. Frankly, you can sit home right now and dial in a ton of them. Why do we gather? We gather out of obedience. We gather because we're the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. You've heard me say before, if I was a surgeon and I'd take out your kidney, set it on a table, in a few minutes the kidney is what? Dead. Attach the kidney to the body. Kidneys, well, you know, if it's already dead, it's dead, right? But the kidney, while it remains in the body, is part of the body. Very functional. Miraculously functional. Cut it out, put it on a table, it's dead. Right? Let me encourage us. One of the values of being a part of the body of Christ, and we may or may not like this, is that I get to know, I get a, I get a little more insight as to what my flat spots are. Does that make sense? I get a little more insight, because otherwise I might think I'm awesome. Right? I might think I'm the silver, and actually I'm the tin. These guys thought, these guys, picture this. They're gathering for church on, on well, Saturday, they were Jews. They gather for church on Saturday, right? And on Thursday night, they were hiring hitmen to kill somebody. And on Wednesday night, they were committing lewdness that we shouldn't talk about. And on Tuesday night, they're worshiping Baal. And on Monday night, they're sacrificing their children to Molech. And on Sunday night, they're practicing some kind of corrupt extortion scheme. But on Saturday, they went to church. They thought they were awesome. They thought they were the silver. And God has to say, no, you're the dross. You're the dross. And I'm going to heat you up. I'm going to bring fire to let you realize that. It's important that we know that we are fallible. Human beings tend to not see their own flat spots. Verse 23, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleaned or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like the roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests, so her prophets and her priests, her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, they have, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. And her princes, so we got her prophets, her priests, and her princes, all the leaders of the church, all the leaders of the society. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gain. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divinations, lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the people, I'm sorry, when the Lord had not spoken. So, the description of the prophets, the priests, the princes, or as we said earlier, the kings is that they took advantage of the people for personal gain and for corruption. 
Now again, all individuals have responsibility. As an individual, as a human being, we each have a certain responsibility before God to live accordingly as children of God. But as leaders, as people who influence others, and again, it's not just me. We all have a certain sphere of influence on others, right? And as we lead others, it is vitally important as a biblical principle that we lead not for dishonest gain, that we lead not to serve just ourselves. I love this. The purpose of the church, I believe, is best, best described in Ephesians 4. Purpose of a church is, quote, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. What's the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to recognize that each of us has a ministry, the work of the ministry. And the gathering of the church is for the building up of that church, that each of those individuals is, is maximally equipped to do their ministry, Right? In this beautiful picture, you go out on Monday morning and have a ministry that I could never have. But you gather on Sunday morning to equip you for that ministry. Right? And as you gather on Sunday morning, it's not like Sunday morning is all you get, right? As you gather on Sunday morning, this is why we keep harping and harping and harping about you need to be in the Word every day because you need to be equipped for your ministry. The purpose, and you need to pray for one another to be equipped for the work of your ministry. You need to encourage one another to be equipped for the work of your ministry. As the body of Christ functions together, you need to be equipped for the work of your ministry. And in this case, the priests, the prophets, and the princes are all just serving themselves. Now, is that possible in church today? Is that possible in church today? May it never be said of us. And I take that very seriously. May it never be said of us. Verse 29. The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppress the stranger. So uh, the leaders aren't the only ones, right? The people of the land. They use oppressions, they commit robbery, they mistreat the poor and the needy, and they oppress the stranger. So not surprisingly, the people did the same things that the leaders who influenced them did. Verse 30, beautiful, beautiful verse. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. So God says, I'm bringing judgment because I looked for somebody to stand in the gap. That is, to encourage the wicked culture to repent. Now, we could say, you know, you could tear this apart. You could say, wait a minute, where was Jeremiah, right? Because he was there, right? Well, some commentators say he was imprisoned by this time, or, you know, they didn't listen to him by this time. In Jeremiah chapter 5 it's, itself, it says, chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, Jeremiah looked for a man who was faithful, and he didn't find any. And so the point is, as we do our part, our part is to try to be, as best we can, that person that stands in the gap. And again, God places us in specific places, in specific uh, spheres of people, 
so that we can stand in the gap. The, uh, there's a gap. Have you noticed this? There's a gap between sinful man and righteous God. Right? And Jesus, obviously, is the solution to that, the only solution to that. But we can be people that can point, that can point others to Jesus. Right? God says, I'm bringing destruction because I looked for that person. I couldn't find a single one. Again, let that not be said of us. So, we must not forget God. Chapter 21, God's going to bring judgment. Chapter 22, why God brings judgment is because of their horrible, rotten-to-the-core wickedness. But where does that horrible, rotten-to-the-core wickedness start? It starts with forgetting God. It starts with thinking that we're silver when in reality we're dross. We're the impurity. It starts when we think that we're too good to be teachable. We're too good to be corrected. We're too good. We're too wise. We're too insightful to recognize our own flat spots. And again, this is why the body of Christ Christ dwells together. Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. These Jewish people in Jerusalem were deceiving themselves. They thought they were silver when they were actually the impurities. Is that possible? Is it possible to give ourselves a better grade than maybe we should be giving ourselves? Are these hard things to say? Yeah. Are they healthy things to say? Yeah. Do we need one another? Yeah. Do we need to remember and recognize and acknowledge all that God has done for us and live accordingly? Yeah. But it's like any relationship, right? It's like any relationship. Don't neglect. Don't neglect the value of the relationship with God. What value did he place on it? The the death of his son. The death of his son. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you value a relationship with each of us, even individually. So much so that you would have sent your son to die on a cross to pay the price for the sin of each of us, even individually. And so, Lord, help us to have a sobriety of life. Help us to have a sobriety of realizing the implications of our sin that go way beyond what we think they do. Help us have a sobriety related to our own flat spots. Help us have a sobriety related to the problems and the needs of our of our culture. And help us to be compassionate, not arrogant, not self-righteous, but humble, so that we can live lives that would glorify you and that we could be those people that stand in the gap and point people to Jesus. So have your way with us, Lord. Please let us be those people this week. And please guide us and lead us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.